Hello, Hello there. there. Welcome back to yet another episode of Star Wars in a Galaxy, watching all the Star Wars we can get our hands on. I am a time Olek. And I am Obi-Wan Kenobi, I guess, because he's in this. <laughs> I'm Eli. I'm Jacob. And um, today, uh, this is episode 58 of Star Wars in a Galaxy. Um, we hope you enjoyed our collaboration with Nessa on that crazy, gigantic Umbara episode, which was two and a half hours long, uh, our initial recording at least. Uh, but anyway, today is not about Umbara. Today is about Zygeria and that arc of Star Wars. The Clone Wars, we watched uh, the episodes of Kidnapped, Slaves of the Republic, and Escape from Kadavo. So, kicking it off with Kidnapped. In this episode, uh, Count Dooku and the Separatist army, accompanied by some Zygerian slavers, make their way to a pacifist Togrutan settlement on the planet Heroes and round up all the inhabitants and, and kidnap them. Later, the Republic shows up, but they are too late. However, um, Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka are there. Um, Obi-Wan ends up negotiating with a Zygerian slaver who has planted bombs around the city. Uh, meanwhile, Anakin and Ahsoka race against the clock to disarm the bombs before the Zygerian uh, decides, to, decides to set them off. So in the end, they don't get any bombs. However, he tries to escape, but Anakin and Ahsoka make their way onto the Zygerian slave ship and apprehend him. And I'm not sure what happens after that. I can't quite. I can't quite remember. These episodes kind of blend together. They, Do you remember where this one ends? And... They just talk with Yoda, and that's how they. Yeah, they just that. talk with Yoda. Yoda's like, mm, "Slavery, path to the dark side, as it is." And then, and no, then it, it he turns says off it's a weapon of the Sith. Episode. This is a yeah. distinction I'll make later on. It, the slavery is a dark side thing, but it's especially a Sith thing. We'll see that later on. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, our fortune cookie is where we are going always reflects where we came from. Um, so what do you think about this? Mm, I think this is a pretty a pretty cool fortune cookie. Um, it's definitely better than some of the ones we've been dealing with recently. Um, yeah. I think it's really reflected in uh, the Zygerian Dinar and an Anakin. Because, yeah, I was going to say Anakin myself. Yeah, yeah, obviously with Anakin's past with slavery i think he kind of gets mad when he hears that there are zygerians and he kind of he flies off the handle and handles things very recklessly and that kind of that 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 sort of in a way reflects how his current actions and his current disposition are being affected by his past and also we see that in dinar because dinar is really kind of obsessed with as are most of these high-level Zygerians in this episode, rebuilding the slave empire that the Jedi uh, that the Jedi demolished hundreds of years ago. So he is very bitter and really allows himself to kind of be tricked by Obi-Wan. And he allows Obi-Wan to trick him into a hand-to-hand -hand fight, even though that distracts him from the bombs and the negotiations. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from the Clone Wars movie that... Um is also about Anakin and his past that I often reflect on with this fortune cookie. Um, Ahsoka says to him, Master Yoda always says, old sins cast long shadows. Um, and, like, if that's another way for me of interpreting this fortune cookie, is old sins cast long shadows. There, Anakin is 
incredibly impacted by his past as a slave. Um, Without a doubt. And also, this this arc also question, puts into question a lot of his attachment. Um, so uh, that's that's also going to impact him a lot is his stance on attachment. Um, the Zygerians, I'm going to get into this, are really interesting. Um, the Zygerians are like the flip side for me of Mandalore. Um, mm. ma well, Mandalore built up the physical weaponry to fight the Jedi. The Zygerians seem to build up the mental weaponry and the moral weaponry and the psychological weaponry to fight the Jedi. Um, because of how they torture their slaves, because of how they enslave people, because of all those different factors, it feels to me like they are the greatest, because what do we hear constantly about Jedi in this arc? Their strength of will. They, they have such a willpower. And yeah. Zygerians seemed uniquely apt and prepared to combat that. You know what I mean? They seem, they seem like, you know, they start breaking Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in that prison in the third episode. And had he been there for for a little bit longer, they might have actually been able to do it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's it's interesting to me because this arc seems to me a lot about Anakin. It's a lot about him and and how turning to the dark side seems reasonable for him. You know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. This is a um, turning point for Anakin. Um. Yeah. Uh. So, should we get into that the episode at large? Uh. Yeah. Let's do it. So we start off, you know, with Dooku, obviously coming down. Um. He has a little exchange with the leader. You know, some pleasantries yeah. before he kind of puts his hand on his shoulder and says, "No, no, I insist that we be here for your uh your protection." And he, he kind of makes it clear that, you know, this we're, this is an invasion. You know, we're, we're trying to be nice, but this is yeah, this is invasion. And then immediately you see the Zagerian slaver pop out. He's just like, okay, round everybody up. Take them all. Yeah. And they end up taking 50,000 people. It, it's, it's one of the things. We see this a lot in the Clone Wars. Um, you know, there, there are often situations where people are leaders of local systems are forced to choose sides in the Clone Wars. And they choose neither, and then one's chosen for them. And it's all yeah. almost always by the separatists. You know, yeah. we see like, this in on Onderon later in, in the Clone Wars. King uh King Dendup doesn't choose anything and then they install King Rash in there and then he chooses for them. Yeah, it definitely feels like we've seen I feel like watching this, I was like, hmm, I've we've definitely seen this same yeah. kind of type of exchange play out time and time again in this show across Lorman all the different seasons. Season one. Yeah. Um, King Katunko. King Katunko. Um, Although he, he ends up getting the the good end of the stick, you might say, in the well, end. Well, for a but, time. Yeah, for a time. Until he gets killed by skewered. some other press. But... Until he gets skewered. Um, yeah, he gets skewered. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Unlike, even like the Poltec village in um, On the Wings of Kiradak from uh, season seven. Hey, yeah, that's you know, a good one too. Just there until yeah. they're. Um, it's like, nope, you gotta choose. <laughs> you got, you gotta choose. Um, uh, we can go on and on, but um, that that the most interesting thing is almost always in these situations, the separatists force their hand 
and because of that, they almost always choose the Republic. Um, yeah, almost it's, always. It's a pattern that you would think, I don't know, but you would think the Separatists would re- realize, you know what I mean? Um, not not from a moral standpoint, from but from a tactical standpoint, you know. Maybe we don't force these people's hands because... Or, and maybe we wait for the Republic to do it for us, which is not likely, but could act, could theoretically happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think this this idea of the forcing hand of these smaller communities and and governments is something that I think the the show struggles with sometimes to kind of reconcile what they are showing with the narrative that they are also trying to put forward. The narrative is that you know, more and more systems are defecting to the separatists, you know, in the attack of the clones, you know, there's a quote about 10,000 systems have already joined Dooku and the separatists. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but it's, it's some astronomically large number like that. Over 10,000. Over 10,000. Yeah. That is the, it's over 10,000. Nice job. (laughs) And then uh, we see that. And then at the same time in the clone wars show, over and over we have communities choosing the republic you know yeah. we have the lerman we have well, then again, Inca Tunco, we have we have these Tegruda. you know there are billions of systems in the galaxy we only get to see in the clone wars like a few dozen that's a good point that's a good point like, i just think i i know they're i see your point they're the ones that they're putting forward but like you know it's, yeah, like there's supposed to be millions of systems. Like Umbara, so I guess it makes sense. for example. Umbara. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Umbar is one of the ones Umbara, that went the other way. They they, they join the separatists big time, and look how that works out for them. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's like uh, we never actually get to see a system choosing. Like we never actually get to see a local government see their leaders, get to know them, and then hear them and see them say, oh, "We're choosing the side of the separatists." And I think that's a that's little a, bit of a that's a good it's a little point. bit of a missed opportunity. I think. It's a good point. It's kind we of, almost always see them after or something. Like like yeah. Rash is like Rash is just like there. We think he's the king of Onderon for like ten minutes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I think this kind of relates back to what we were saying a few episodes ago about Padme's negotiation and diplomacy skills. We always we always hear talk of how great they are and how Padme is gonna be the one to save the day. And then it always ends up being Padme failing to convince whoever whoever it is to to side with the Republic. Yeah. Most so I think it's a similar, time, yeah. it's a similar dilemma where the story demands certain things That's to be compelling, but on a larger scale, it's not, not a record. Yeah. It's not like a representative sample of what they want to have happen on a larger scale. Yeah. Um, let's go to, um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Anakin and Ahsoka in this arc because I think it's interesting because we get to see because both of them have personal ties to this you know Ahsoka is a Togruta these are her people I wish we could have gotten that a little bit more explored in this but that's fine uh and Anakin of course is the slave so it's interesting um that Anakin and Ahsoka are coming at this from two different angles that are both completely valid as in this um yeah yeah i also think this is interesting i didn't write this down but i was thinking about this so 
Kiros is a completely peaceful population, you know what I mean? They yeah. uh they have uh in Slaves of the Republic, uh what's his name? Uh one of the slave masters at the auction says, "Not a single warrior among them." Yeah. What is this saying about violence? You know what I mean? Because they 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 choose nonviolence, which you think is something Star Wars wants to preach, and does over and over again preach in different material. But then they just get completely like trodden over. You know what I mean? It's an yeah, interesting... I, I I do know what you mean. It's an interesting idea that they have chosen nonviolence. Um, I guess that's not really the point, though. It, the point is not that they've chosen nonviolence. It's that they've chosen nonviolence and then they choose to contact the separatists first. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, let's see. Uh, what else? Um... Oh yeah, did you get pains when Obi-Wan was talking to Boyle because he knew what that meant or did you catch that? Um not exactly. Can you can you elaborate? Well, when well when Obi-Wan talks to Boyle, why doesn't he say anything to Waxer? <laughs> okay, oh, oh yeah, cuz Waxer's there. Cuz Waxer's dead. Cuz oh. cuz half of the cuz half of the well, that, odd yeah, couple is... of the Clone Wars is dead cuz Waxer was killed on Umbara. Um, oh yeah, I forgot that, that t- this takes place men. after that. So when Obi Wan references Boyle, um, my heart panged a little bit because I knew that, that Boyle was, was with, yeah. missing his brother in arms. Yeah, that was that was rough. That was definitely a rough moment. Once the bomb goes off, and then we see Obi Wan head up to the spire to negotiate. You know, I think for a guy named or for a guy nicknamed the Negotiator, it sure doesn't take Obi Wan long to have the the whole negotiation meeting, kind of. Devolve well, like in, into a uh, that's not into a fist fight to Obi Wan really because the, the Dinar was never really intending it to be a negotiation. Yeah, that's true, and I think Obi Wan wasn't. I, I think Obi Wan kind of Obi Wan kind of knew Obi Wan figured that out he was pretty trying quickly. to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can't really say that Obi Wan handled it poorly as a negotiator because yeah. it was never a negotiation. To begin with, yeah, um, no, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he handled it poorly. I would just say it's, it, it is amusing to me because of the context of Obi Wan being this supposed. It, it's funny, you know, I think great it, negotiator. The, the the reputation of the negotiator often works in ways that Obi Wan would never suspect them to work because, like, Obi Wan never in the Clone Wars actually peacefully negotiates out something really it he it's not like he he doesn't use the negotiator to negotiate he uses it as a military tactic yeah he often out talks people and that's how things are able to like you know in this episode where he out talks and out fights eventually the dinar to buy anakin and ahsoka sometime your favorite one the tactical surrender in um the clone wars movie he often never never uses negotiation as an actual negotiation but as a battle tool yes that is true Um, that is definitely that is definitely true yeah it's kind of ironic that in less than two years anakin goes from 
charging head on to, to fight slavers, to betraying the Jedi and becoming the right hand man in an empire, in an empire that wants to return to slavery and is actively using slavery as like it's kind of platform, I guess. I was trying to rationalize that in Anakin's head, and I think it's about revenge, honestly. Yeah, I don't know. Does he not care? There's a lot of, I mean, there's obviously a lot of layers to that, but it's an interesting question of how does he, I mean, maybe he, it's how totally possible Vader also that he's, slavery? he's just not thinking about it. Yeah. And, or he's yeah. choosing like consciously not to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, you know, Darth my Vader. My only rationalization for if he is, is that it's about revenge. It's about, I experienced pain, so thus they should experience pain as well yeah i think also um i think uh in if i can make some connections and loop this around in the force awakens we get a little bit of the mindset of, of for example kylo ren after going to the dark side where he kind of says ben was weak and foolish i wouldn't be surprised if if oh if vader once he's vader thinks the same way of himself when he was oh, well, a jedi right. anakin and, and he and thinks we, like i was foolish like He's probably he probably rationalizes it as oh I'm a Sith now like it's the order I, of things I'm pretty sure it's how it's supposed to be Anakin somewhere he says Anakin Skywalker was weak I destroyed him or something like that yeah or, yeah yeah at, at very least in Return of the Jedi um I I know that you were once Anakin Skywalker my father that name no longer has any meaning to me by the way have you noticed um a couple times the Imperial March plays in this um yeah I arc? did notice that I think that's yeah, that's something definitely that I picked up on that kind of let me know, hey, this is about Anakin, especially yeah. and this is about his um his his fall yeah. a little Anakin, bit. Anakin in general, you see um actually I compare a lot of stuff in Slaves of the Republic specifically in the second episode to Return of the Jedi, and there's a lot of just flat out parallels in that um in that episode to return of the jedi this ep this arc feels very jedi-esque in its tone because in both a skywalker is battling between the light and the dark now one makes a more concrete choice than the other you know i am a jedi like my father before me but we see anakin you know he he has those heroic moments you know the salute thing with the luke um parallel from return of the jedi but then like how many people, how many times does he just straight up force choke somebody? Yeah. Without, yeah, I like, totally agree. And no, nobody bats an eye at it either. Like, it's just like, yeah, that's that's what Anakin's doing. That's not normal, you know. Yeah, that, definitely not. That's not normal for a Jedi. Um, ah ah Ahsoka says to Obi-Wan, don't worry, I'll keep an eye on him. Which is just so out of line, I gotta say. Um... Not that Ahsoka wants to do it. That Ahsoka wants to do it is, like, just lovely. But, like, that she has to, like, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Anakin is absolutely. a Jedi Knight at this point. Uh, like, that should, that's his problem, not Ahsoka's problem. You know what I mean? I know this episode, it was very, um... It was definitely an interesting one. It really felt kind of we're getting into these darker themes of season four, you know? Yeah. A little bit more morally complex, even than kicking it up a notch for as as I said, season two kicked it up a notch. Clearly, season four is also kicking it up a notch or two. 
I mean, season three also. Like, we can't forget about season three. Season three... Season one started the show. Season two started to get into those complex themes. Season three introduced politics and dark side sects. Um, that sounded wrong. S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> um, the Night Sisters I was talking about. Oh and now God. season four is... Season four is... Season four is season one, but, like, really dark. Like, really dark. Hmm, how so? Because all that season one four is is just arc versions of season one episodes, you know? There are all these different battles and all these different systems. All of the all of it, like, if we look at plot details, like, it's fighting battles on different planets, and that's basically season one. But if we look into the nitty-gritty, we see, you know, season one is about choosing a side in a war and attachment and all that stuff. What's season four about? The ethics of slavery, you know? We're firing on our own men. And like, that kind of... It, they're way more morally, like, complex and rich episodes, just in general. Yeah. I'm standing by my argument that season four is just buffed season one. Um, yeah, that's a that is uh, a uh, that is a hot take for sure. But I, I like it. Yeah, I like it. Um, did you notice these animals, by the way? Mm, which, which animals? All the animals that Dinar's keeping as pets. I mean, I mean, it's I noticed like them. Yeah, an entire, I, like they appear so often in this episode, and then they appear a little bit in uh, Slaves of the Republic and. Escape from Kadavo, I kept wondering what they're meaning. I don't know. I think the Clone Wars and Star Wars often uses exotic animals as a way to kind of tell the viewer, like this person is is this person is bad news. Cause I think they kind of use that to communicate this person loves owning other beings. Yeah. But And you but... know, if we look at the real world parallels, you know, if someone if someone owns like an exotic animal, you're kind of like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah. So I think it's it's much it's much the same in Star Wars, you know, like it's with just, Jabba and the Rancor. Yeah, I was just thinking. I I came up with an idea, which is which fascinates me, because what is the difference in their mind between enslaving all of these creatures and enslaving all of the actual like people? Not yeah. much. They're yeah, really not much. Obsessed with slavery. They're obsessed with owning things that could run free. You might all almost say that the Zigerians are enslaved by slavery. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess seriously, so. though, the, the Zigerians are bound to this idea of slavery. Like, take away slavery. Again, um, this is one of my favorite things about this episode. Dinar's fighting Obi Wan, and he says to him, for thousands of years, Nigeria supplied slave labor to the galaxy. We prospered. Our customers prospered. Then the Jedi came. Um, I'll, I'll get back to why that's also so cool later. But, like, again, you see a, a society so incredibly bound to slavery that without it, you know, then the Jedi came. And we find yeah. out later that the Jedi just kind of ravaged them. And it's taken them all this time to build back up. Wipe out slavery, and the Nigerians are nothing. Yeah, they kind of feel very, very attached. 
Through they, slavery. They are, like, they are literally yeah. enslaved by slavery. Because, like, they see it, like, the reason that they hate the Jedi so much because the Jedi hate slavery is because they see slavery, I guess, consequentially as uh, from being, like, a very slave-heavy society. It's, like, part of their identity at this yeah. point. Um, one of the things I was thinking about with that speech, for thousands of years, uh, Zegeria supplied slave labor to the galaxy. We prospered. Our customers prospered. Then the Jedi came. I'm like, wait, I've heard this one before. Yeah. Like a, for generations, my ancestors fought proudly as warriors against the Jedi. Now this woman tarnishes the very name Mandalorian. Yeah, it's, the it's, same thing. Yeah, it really, yeah, it actually really reminded me of that, the kind of aspect of wanting to go back in time and, and resurrect this past greatness with no yeah. mind for, I guess, human rights, the suffering of, of others, the yeah. suffering of your people. But, like, imagine a, an alliance between the man, the Death Watch and the Zygerians. Oh, gosh, please, no. They would be unstoppable. Because, again, as I was saying before, the Man Mandalorians have the weapons to fight Jedi. And so do the Zygerians, but especially the Mandalorians. But yeah. the Zygerians have the mental facilities to fight the Jedi. Because they're all about establishment of pain and removal of compassion, all this stuff. They basically are, you know... They're the deconstructors of the Jedi mentally. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I also, by the way, love. Um, I, I just saw this. Um, Obi Wan uses uh, honor against Dinar to challenge him to that fist fight, right? Yeah. What other um, leader of a society like the Zygerians? Um, is compelled into a fight by honor. That's right. Pre Vizsla is compelled into an honor duel by Maul. Oh yeah. And, and that ends up being them, his downfall. Yeah, both of them come um come up on the short end of the stick. I mean, Vizsla actually dies, but Dinar like gets captured. I think yeah. Um, so I think yeah, I think Dinar maybe doesn't quite realize. I mean, I think he fully doesn't realize, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that Obi-Wan maybe isn't trying his hardest. Maybe it's a diversion. You know, oh, I think you, he's thought, you thought Obi-Wan wasn't trying? It seemed that way to me. Like, clearly he was trying at least a bit. Like, I, I don't oh, think Obi-Wan was just Dinar letting was... himself get beat up. Oh, okay, I thought wait, let me... was just, like, really good, and Obi-Wan yeah. just could not handle his fury. I mean, obviously, that's true, but I, I, I do... I also think at the same time as that is true, Dinar is losing because he doesn't, maybe he, he might be winning the fight. He's winning the battle, but he's losing the war because he doesn't really realize that Obi-Wan is taking advantage of his anger to create a diversion. Interesting. That's really interesting. I did not catch that. That's really cool. I think Yoda saying that the slavery is a great tool for the rise of the Sith. Oh, are you, you're you bringing that in. I gonna, was just you, about to talk gonna, about that. Oh, yeah, okay, all right, yeah. Let's yeah. touch on that then. I really want to touch on that. Yeah, I love this line. I love this line. Um, you know, Sidious references in, in himself in Slaves of the Republic. 
Um, many of the great Sith empires were built on the backs of slaves. Um, what do you have for it? I'm very interested now. Um, so I think that uh, in some symbolic way, maybe, part of the reason that the Sith were able to rise again was is symbolized by how the Jedi kind of failed to stop slavery and, and failed to even keep trying to stop slavery. You know, like Qui-Gon, or I think it's Qui-Gon, when they're on Tatooine, says, you know, like, oh, we aren't here to free slaves. Like, come yeah. on, you're a Jedi, you know? That's so I think that may, may, maybe it's not literally the reason that the Sith rose again. Obviously, there's probably a lot more to it, it than that. It's a symbolic reason that the Sith rose But I think again. symbolically... The Jedi this, stopped caring. Symbolically, I think this kind of shows a little bit of the... Uh, maybe the moral decline of the Jedi and maybe the some of the complacency of the Jedi that kind of led to Palpatine flourishing and the Sith power and this is without them catching it. For me, I still have not read most of High Republic stuff, but the idea that the Nile are going to be this huge threat for the Jedi, I can see a situation where the Jedi have carried on this like century-long fight with the Nile. They eventually win, and they're just exhausted. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're, they absolutely. Just, like, the Nile distracted them so much from what's actually going on in the galaxy, but by the time they realize, they're just like, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? That's 100% um, the case. Uh, and my thing is, like, you know, if you look at slaves in the Sith, you're like, you know, the the Mustafarians are enslaved by Vader in the comics. And, you know, the on, on KOTOR, in KOTOR 1, the Sith thrive on slavery. They enslave many on Korriban, and they start, like, you know, enslaving... Um, do they not start enslaving Wookiees in that game, or am, am I just like totally? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not they, sure. They I wouldn't be surprised. They Wookiees and rebels. They enslave Wookiees and rebels, and yeah. that's a Sith Empire built on slavery. And then, like one of my favorite examples on Exegol, all those cultists that Palpatine—they they were enslaved by him. I mean, they happened to be fanatics, but they were still enslaved. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, definitely. And yeah. The backs of many a great Sith Empire. And, um, oh, Exar Kun in Legends, um, enslaved the Masasi and had them, had, had them build a humongous temple for him on the planet of Yavin 4. Sorry, on the moon of Yavin 4. Um, yeah, all great Sith Empires are built on slavery. Um, yeah. So I, that is definitely slaves. true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is kind of, in it, yeah, it's very ominous in this episode, you know, when we have Dooku talking to. Is that little Dooku Palpatine conversation in it? No, it's not in this episode, is it? No, it's in uh, Slaves of the Republic. Yeah. But that no, moment is so good. No, it's in Escape so from Kadavo. Oh, yeah. That moment when... Oh, yeah, because Dooku arrives in Escape from Kadavo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in Escape oh. from Kadavo. Yeah, that little um, moment where he's just like, we will need millions. That moment is just... Oh, it's it's absolutely chilling. It's, it's blood it's curdling. Beautiful. It's a great moment. Um, Should we get on to the next episode? Um... Yes, that would be... Slaves oh, of the Republic. I actually have one interesting mo uh, trivia piece for... Go right ahead. Kidnapped. The Takora, which is the name of the Zagirian slave ship, is also the name of an 1800s Portuguese slave ship. So I think Good the creators of the Clone Wars definitely... They definitely knew what they had in mind when they were creating this episode, without a doubt. Absolutely. 
Um, Slay of the Republic, my personal favorite episode from this arc. Um, probably excluding Mon Calamari, my favorite episode of The Clone Wars Season 4 at this point. Um, really? Uh, Alright. Yeah. Uh, in Slaves of the Republic, uh, the Jedi, Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Ahsoka, and Rex uh, actually go to Zygeria in order to find out where the heck the people of Kiros are. Shenanigans ensue. Anakin is eventually forced to work for um, the Zygerian queen Mirage Sintel, who really, really likes him. Like, really likes him. Yeah, it's um, surprising. And um, Obi-Wan is enslaved. Um, and eventually, at the end of the episode, um, Ahsoka is disguised as a slave. Um, Anakin is still um, uh, basically enslaved as a servant for um, Sintel. And Obi-Wan and Rex are sent to the slave camps of Kadavo. Um, let's get into this. Um, Forge and Cookie. Those who enslave others inevitably become slaves themselves. Mm. This episode, I think, is, just as the Fortune Cookie might suggest, incredibly dark. Incredibly it dark. It is. It's, an, it's incredibly philosophical, too. Because you realize in this episode... Jacob, name a single human being in the galaxy who isn't a slave, excluding Palpatine. I mean, if we Other take slave in the sense of the, of the... What is the queen's name? Sintel. Sintel. Mirage Sintel. Yeah, if we take slavery in the sense that Mirage Sintel is saying and being like, oh, you know, you, you, uh, you're a slave to the Republic, Attica, that I think... Yeah, you're you're absolutely because all, absolutely all the right. Republic military and the Republic civilians and the, the separatist military and the separatist civilians are all slaves to Palpatine's plan. It doesn't matter how many of them die on either side, because Palpatine's plan is going to get done by the end of the Clone Wars, and that's just going to happen. Yeah. You know, I uh, either you're a, a direct slave to Palpatine or you're a slave to somebody who's a slave to Palpatine. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like Sintel in this episode, um, it's it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting um, idea. I mean, I connected it back to the whole idea that the Zygerians are enslaved by slavery, and that's true. But I like the idea that um, I I was trying to figure out who this quote came from the entire time I was watching this episode, and I finally figured it out. Um, Everybody serves somebody um, mm. from Solo. Um, Dryden Voss says that to Beckett. Um, or, or Han or somebody. When they're having the, the talks in that room, you know what I mean? In Voss's personal room on the first light. Voss yeah. says to somebody, everybody serves somebody. Um, and that's quite, that's, that's quite true in this episode. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think, um, you know, there's so many layers to the idea of being a slave to the Republic. And this, you know, Anakin has to watch innocent people suffer and die and then stand by and do nothing to stop that. Is he a slave of the Republic for doing that, as the Queen says? Or is he kind of a slave to his emotions and, and his attachments, which are very un-Jedi-like, for kind of jumping in the mix to try and help his friends at the cost of 
the mission. It feels like either way, it's a no-win situation for him. He has to lay down some part of what he feels to be his responsibility as a Jedi and as a person. Yeah, so he really I... doesn't have a good he doesn't have a good choice. But one thing in terms of this idea of, of slavery that I want to bring up is is Anakin kind of said, uh, I think at one point they may be riding on that dragon lizard thing and the queen says, you know, you're, you're a slave to the public. And Anakin says, I don't think commitment is slavery. And she says, but if you lose yourself, then it is. And I think in that yeah. sense, he is absolutely a slave to the Republic. And even to his, he is a slave to his, his love for Padme, as sad as that is, you know, where, yeah, yeah he, he ends up, attachments. like, he ends up, like, he ends up, like, betraying the Jedi, killing younglings. Anakin cannot because... mentally imagine in his mind a world where he does not have Obi-Wan, Palpatine, Padme, and Ahsoka to his side. Yes. He that just can't, very true. he cannot visualize that. And that's kind of his problem. That's hundred percent is. I mean, and by the if way, we want to talk about attachment, one hundred percent totally his problem. We want to talk about att attachment. That is a hundred percent his problem. Yeah, I. Uh, that, I don't. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, um, uh, you gotta love this. Um, I love this. Um, uh, why are why am I playing the slave? I tried it once. I wasn't very good at it. Beside, besides, the role of master comes easily to me. I think Mace Jacob, Windu would like to say something about that. I was about to say, I, I literally wrote in my notes, Mace Windu woke up in a cold sweat. Yeah, but I mean, all jokes aside, this is had, honestly, it's played as a joke, but this honestly must be a pretty painful moment for everybody because you know, Anakin has to pretty much make Ahsoka a slave in order for the mission to work. Yeah. You know, even though, though like, yeah, again, it's a it's, lot. It's played for laughs in the New Hope, but like again, re remember um, on the Death Star, um, uh, Luke puts Chewie in binders, and then like Chewie almost chokes the guy. Um, yeah, I know. And then because... Han, and he lets Han do it, but, but like Chewie was a slave. Yeah, it's like it's hard. <laughs> there is a there is yeah. no way around it. This is not easy for everyone involved clearly but um yeah uh, they're like we're they're like we're gonna do what needs to be done yeah uh i also love um later it's a, a later funny reference um uh Sintel and anakin are talking when he's introducing himself and and um and Sintel goes you are a bold one aren't you um and i'm like mirage you got the wrong republic general that's general yeah Kenobi. you got yeah you got the wrong Republic general. 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I want to talk a little bit, because it's one of the weirdest parts of this arc. Sintel is, like, in love with Anakin. Yeah, this part, that part is kind of, I don't know, it feels strange in, it's, for some reason. It's, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, it, it's very interesting, though, the way she clearly despite yeah i think it just shows how normalized slavery is in in this um in this society where you know she uh she just expects him to kind of i mean obviously she knows it's trying to torture him but 
Mirage Sintel kind of expects Anakin to be cool with her kind of hitting on him and, and getting all lovey-dovey and like trying to, you know, yeah. trying to get with him, even though she's also saying like, Jedi scum, you're stupid and dumb. Well, that was not an intent. That was not intended to rhyme. But you know what I mean? Like, like it's interesting. Like half this episode, she doesn't even know he's a Jedi. Yeah, I know. And then, um, and what, but once, once she does, you know, once she which does, I think it, is in, it gets even weirder. Yeah. Once it does, she kind of doubles down on her determination to kind of keep, keep him, I guess, and make yeah. him a, uh, make him like a, a slave, but also like her, her boyfriend kind of, which is incredibly it's weird, such, gross it's such dynamic a weird relationship in this arc. Yeah. I don't understand how she expects it to work, but. I don't understand and, and then, either. Like, I, I don't understand just on the level of she really expects Anakin to stay on Zygeria. Like, yeah. She, is, she literally says to him, she intuits that he was a former slave. Yeah, and he like, just, oh and she just expects him to, like, stay on a planet that's known for slavery. I guess that also kind of shows what kind of person she is or she, she wants to manipulate that in him so you know what i mean it's just i don't know i think she kind of elicits some pity at the end of the series because she gets force choked by count but yeah she is she she is she is a uh she is a piece of work she is not a good person she is a complex character and i really like that about her she is a she is not one-dimensional she you never know what side she's gonna fall on on the end of this um yeah absolutely by the way um zygeria it was modeled after ancient egypt right um i'm not sure what it, it i don't know if it's like modeled it. after anything specifically what makes you say that a bunch of things the exotic animals seem to suggest egyptian influence this the, the Mass building on the backs of slaves, the desert environment, but it's not like completely desert because of the whole like oasis idea. The thing, the idea that most Nigerians look like cats. And yeah, oh, what, that's a good. Yeah. What did the ancient Egyptians worship, worship more than anything? Cats. Yeah, I like, think this that idea of... may actually have some merit, g- given that you know we know Star Wars's propensity for making mythological and and biblical and historical references yeah i definitely think it's a possibility especially given you know in a biblical sense ancient egypt and the in the enslavement of the jews yeah Uh, but either way i think it is definitely i honestly just the enslavement of everyone because they just they just enslaved everyone they could yeah it's Um, yeah yeah uh and and like, like the Queen Sintel thing, like that's like a Cleopatra reference or something. Mm, um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to this slave auction, which, oh my God, this slave auction is incredible. I love this sequence so much. What do you love about it? Well, the most obvious thing I love about it is that uh, is the um, the the overt reference to return of the jedi yeah that was a that was a cool touch it i like that so cool um uh anakin gets down he's about to to whip obi-wan 
he signals up to R2, um, and Ahsoka just like Luke uh, signals up to R2 and uh, Lando. Uh, I can almost hear as R2 shoots the lightsabers out, which is, by the way, the exact same thing he does in Return of the Jedi. I can almost hear in the background, dun 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 yeah. I thought it was a really cool, like, father-like son. It was really great. I loved it kind of so moment. much. Yeah. Um, but if we can backtrack a minute, actually, because I have a, I have an important question that I'm very confused yeah. by. How does Ahsoka know who Bruno Denturi is? What it, what is all this Ahsoka Bruno Denturi know. talk? Anakin. How does Anakin know who Bruno Denturi yeah, like, is? Who even? Sorry, yeah, so many, I so want questions. this. This is a forces of destiny, just like waiting to happen. Absolutely, hundred percent. Or like just a short story. Anakin on the way to Nigeria finds this guy Bruno Denturi and kills him because Jedi. Um, perfect story. Perfect story. Like you know. I know I've mentioned this a lot. Anakin finding and killing Bruno Denturi is the equivalent of a Komari Vosa in Bounty Hunters, or a That Time on Kanonomoidia, or The Swarm of Venomites on Draboon, or, you know, um, all these untold stories that I'm just so excited to get one day, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. That would be be great. That's from a certain point of view, the Clone Wars story. If they do us from a certain point of view book from the Clone Wars. Bruno Denturi has a story in there. I'm sure. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Uh, be, uh, 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 oh my gosh. A Clone Wars from a certain point of view would be so Yeah, good. and not like the stories of light and dark that we got that was technically like a certain point of view. That doesn't count because almost all of them were novelizations of Clone Wars episodes. That doesn't. That like It was good. I liked it. I read it. It was great. But like background characters. I want a Jabo story. <laughs> yeah imagine a jabo story imagine imagine another cut story i would die if we got another cut laquane story um, I, I would love that imagine an entire clone wars era short story about rook cast yeah you don't know i mean do you know rook cast is very obscure i don't um, but and i'm sure it would be good she's the main um uh, she's one of the main leaders of Maul's Mandalorians, just alongside Gar Saxon. Mm, I see. She's she appears mostly in the Son of Dathomir comic, but she appears in the Siege of Mandalore, where she's voiced by Vanessa Marshall. Ooh. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, yeah. I think. It, I also love, by the way, that that in in Return of the Jedi, the rescue sequence succeeds in uh in slaves of the republic the rescue attempt fails yeah i think this might be a a small way in which they're trying to show here's some ways where luke maybe succeeded where anakin failed you know luke planned this out in advance anakin with anakin by the seat of his pants like he always does yeah anakin is yes exactly he is flying by the seat of his pants not even the seat of his pants he is just He's he's, he's in just, his he's in his underwear flying through the air, but first he's just going where the wind takes him. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, he didn't exactly not plan it out, but like you know, he didn't exactly plan it out either. But I like, think both planned it out. Luke just had a better plan. Yeah, and I think in some cruel dark way, I I think that this uh and this Anakin episode faced greater odds too. Yeah, he did. 
I think in some cruel dark way, this episode is a lot about, um, you know, you know, having to, uh, having to pick your battles as horrible as that, as callous as that sounds in this context, you know, Anakin really, uh, he really just goes for it. And, uh, yeah, clearly it doesn't work out for him. Same with Obi-Wan. He tries to take the, uh, the governor and he immediately gets caught and shot out of the air. That yeah. doesn't, that doesn't work out too well for him, you know? I, um, I love the idea, this whole idea of if they're slaves, it will be you that keeps them that way at the end of the episode. The idea that Obi-Wan and Ahsoka and Rex are only could like continued to be in this process because Anakin is forcing them to be by the machinations of Sintel. Um, yeah. This is like, you know, um, it's a Palpatine line. It is inevitable. It is <laughs> your destiny. Yeah. Over and over again, the dark side villains always try to do uh, one thing. They take away your choices. They also try to make you feel alone, which is the Rise of Skywalker, you know, that win by making you feel alone thing, which is also totally valid and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the idea that you have no choice. This is like, you know, Ray Palpatine. I know this decision was unpopular, but Ray Palpatine. Designed to make Ray feel like she has no choice but to go dark. You know, Luke, um, Luke and, and his sister. This designed to make Luke feel like he has no choice. Either Luke or his sister will eventually turn. It's just gonna happen. Um... And with Anakin in the prequels, if he does not turn dark, Padme will die. He has no choice in the matter. Yeah. It takes the strength of the light to say, no, we always have a choice. Which... I think maybe the queen is right about the Jedi being slaves to the Republic. You know, everything she oh, says, it kind of right. makes a lot of sense, even though she also is in many ways incredibly wrong herself about what she is saying. There's oh, yeah. definitely something there. And I think a lot of this arc is kind of taking a look at the state of the Jedi and, and seeing that reflected in Obi-Wan and Anakin. We'll get into this more in the next episode. But yeah, I think there are a lot of layers here left to be unpeeled in, uh, in Escape from Kadavo. All right. So the final episode of this trilogy, Escape from Kadavo. We first hop in with Obi-Wan Kenobi, who has been enslaved along with the rest of the colonists on Kadavo in this big old slave facility. And I'm a little bit foggy on the DLs because I think it's been four days now, possibly, since I watched it. But yeah, Aduku then shows up to the Queen's Palace on Zygeria and he demands that a uh, she uh, kill Anakin, um, and he de so he demands Anakin's execution. However, the queen has apparently grown quite attached to Anakin, and she is uh, unwilling to do this, which uh, may ang angers Dooku. And eventually, the queen's uh, prime minister betrays her and kind of reports Anakin and Anakin into Dooku, so that Dooku can uh, can take him down. However, um. Uh, the queen gets very mad, and Dooku ends up force choking the queen and almost uh, 
almost killing her. Um, and Anakin escapes with the uh, the dying Queen Sintel onto a ship. And right before she dies, um, she tells Anakin where Obi-Wan and the rest of the slaves are being held. So then Anakin and Ahsoka, along with uh, Plo Koon and a lot of the wolf pack clone squadron, mount a massive assault on the cloning, I say cloning facility, because I was thinking in the next episode, my bad. Uh, they massed a launch of attack on this processing facility. They massed Eventually, a they rescued the. Oh, gosh. Very nice. They launched a massive attack on the slaving facility, and eventually, uh, every, all, the, uh, all the slaves are rescued and the facility is destroyed. Indeed, it is. Let's get to our fortune cookie, which is great hope can come from small sacrifices. Um, yeah, this is an interesting, it's a pretty good fortune cookie, I would say. It is, it feels a little bit ironic. This felt like a little bit of a new episode who dis fortune cookie. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it it felt a little bit ironic given given that Obi-Wan ended up inflicting our suffering on his, uh, fellow Togruta, fellow Togruta slaves by trying to kind of sacrifice himself and, and throw himself in the way. And the, the theme of a lot of the episode, the first part is kind of that Obi-Wan is being broken because he, he can't help others. It only makes things worse, which of course is antithetical to everything that the Jedi believe in. Um, and everything Star Wars believes in. Yeah. So I think that it must then be about the Queen dying and right before she dies telling anakin where obi-wan and the slaves are because that in turn know, that creates a lot of like hope for the slaves sacrifice. yeah it doesn't but that's not even really a sacrifice i would say she just like tells him yeah. right before she dies like she has the information she could have freed the slaves if she wanted to she is pretty much in control and she just chooses not to until the very last moment and she doesn't so I wouldn't call that a free sacrifice the slaves. it's just like you know yeah she just tell she just tells anakin where they are but which i mean she kind of we must assume that she thinks that he is gonna free them because you know everything that he is well, everything or, that Anakin or has done or she just point. thinks that you know that sh- that she is going to um that he is gonna like destroy the people who betrayed her you know the separatists yeah yeah that that it, is a possibility as well know, it's a it's a it's and I don't want Kylo Ren right it's not, I don't want you to win I want Kylo Ren to lose sort of thing you don't have to it doesn't have to be she's she doesn't have to be a hero is what i'm trying to say yeah that's a possible i don't think telling him the location of the slaves even if he knows he's gonna free them makes her a hero in any way though no i don't think it does either um yeah uh this demoralization of obi-wan is one of the most frightening sequences in maybe the entirety of this arc. Yeah. I think it, it kind is, of encapsulates perfectly in a larger sense how the Jedi were kind of broken and ground down and diminished through through centuries with the Republic. You know, how they kind of kept trying to help but ended up through twists of fate or purposeful manipulation or pre-existing prejudice and they end up just kind of making things worse and making things worse a lot of the time for for their own image and for what people think of the Jedi. 
you know, there's that line, beg me before this one dies because of you. Yeah. They are, you know, they're forcing Obi-Wan's hand here. They are, it, it is it is a discouragement of compassion, which is what the Jedi are all about. And, you know, not to ingest some of my favorite, inject some one of my favorite Star Wars movies in there. They win by making you feel like you're alone. That's what they do. Um, yeah, I think, I think they definitely put a lot of effort into trying to show the demoral kind of how the how they plan to try and break the Jedi and and create an, an army of uh, an army of Jedi as as they uh, as the Queen said, which um which seems a bit odd to me because Dooku, I don't know how effective. Out of, yeah, like, I mean I don't know everywhere. how effective an army of Jedi would be if. That army is of Jedi is an army that is beaten down and and so badly demoralized that they can't even fight back against anyone. And either way, Dooku just is like, servitude. yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, Dooku just completely nixes that. He's like, no, I I want to destroy the it Jedi. It is kind of pathetic how Dooku's just like, yeah, no, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, Yeah, it, it is a, there, there is this will, you know what I mean? Um, there's this idea of will, the will to do something, the purpose of making somebody do something, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, unfortunately for uh, Master, not for Master, for uh, Mirage Sintel, she breaks the wrong person because who has maybe one of the strongest wills of any Jedi in the galaxy? Anakin freaking Skywalker, whose will is so strong that he will do most things that don't even sound like rational because, you know, he, he is so reckless. He has no, he has very little restraint. The dude has very little restraint is what Anakin has. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the queen, in a way, I think she chose well, kind of sending Obi Wan there. I mean, maybe it, maybe it wasn't even a choice for her because she she likes Anakin and she wants to keep Anakin around. But I think for everything we love about him, I think Obi Wan can, at certain points, kind of let himself be ground down. Not necessarily too easily, but I would say maybe he isn't as the he he doesn't really rebound as, as he could in in certain situations. But I mean, it, it just kind of goes to show how powerful still the uh, the slavery system was that it could subdue someone like Obi Wan. One of the things I love is um, when Dooku calls Mirage a, a slave because yeah. to see that idea of Sintel, you know, flipped up on her head, you know, that kind of... Um, flipping, just like flipping her notions of yeah. power The slave master is now head. a slave. Yeah, yeah. And, and she ends up acknowledging that right before she passes away. 
Yeah, I am but a I think slave, almost, Skywalker, yeah. just as you are. That part would almost fit better in the last episode because I think that last episode's fortune cookie was those who enslave others inevitably become slaves themselves. But I think, yeah, I think all the fortune cookies and titles for the, not the titles maybe, but a lot of the ideas expressed, you know, slaves of the Republic, those who enslave others become the enslaved. Um, I feel like things like that can kind of be used not necessarily interchangeably, but I think they have greater reach than just the one episode that they're that they're given to and that they're ascribed to. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. We gotta we gotta look at these beyond just the episode that they are associated with. Um, um, I also love that Anakin acts like what I call a Republic Jedi does, where he goes for the information and not for the person, you know. She, he doesn't save Mirage because of Mirage. He saves uh, Mirage because she has information he needs. Um, yeah, it's I also reason. thought, in a way, part of that message was, you know, Anakin was trying, Anakin was kind of outward, outwardly, he was very firm and, you know, why would I, he even says something along the lines of, why would I care about this slaver scum? It's like, no, I hate you. But I think at the end of the day, he's a Jedi. As Mirage says, he has the noble selflessness of of a Jedi and the noble selflessness that we uh, often see in Anakin. So I think at the end of the day, he kind of also, whether he wants to or not, feels a little bit of an obligation to try and make those last few moments of her life maybe less painful, maybe don't let her fall into Dooku's hands, maybe not quite as brutal, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um... Let's see. Um, by the way, uh, Plo Koon is like, how is he like so not busy all the time? Like, whenever anyone needs an airstrike on anything, Plo Koon is just ready to go. He's like number four on the council, for God's sake. Why is <laughs> why, how does he have so much free time? Because he's awesome, dude. He's not messing around with the rest of the council. He's awesome. Oh, you gotta love Doesn't Plo he have battles oh, on, to man. fight across the galaxy? Yeah, but he just gets them done so quick because he's awesome. So he always has extra free time to help out his pals. That's just how Plo Koon does things, Eli. <laughs> so, okay, I sure. guess with that, I suppose we could move on to the second part of this episode. This was definitely one of those episodes where it felt like it was really two parts. We had the breaking of Obi-Wan, and then we had the escape from, from Kadavo. I thought this part... You know, it, it's more straight. It's more of a straightforward action type episode. But I really thought it was. It, I thought it was really very well done. The the last ten minutes of the episode, I think, were especially super exciting. There was so much to love. Um, I think. Uh, what for example, when when Anakin and Ahsoka land and they bust in the door, there's this one little moment that I think is so good where Anakin just brutally chops apart these three slavers with his lightsabers. And Ahsoka kind of looks, gives him a little look. Is like, what are you doing, man? You're, you're going crazy. You're going off the rails. You're being brutal. Anakin just kind of sh shrugs and, and gives kind of a pleading look in response. Like, please, they're, they're slavers. What am I supposed to do? So I thought that was a, a nice detail. Yeah, I definitely agree. Can we talk about Commander Colburn? Because I was I was impressed by him, especially considering, you know, we usually get Admiral Yalaran 
who's just by comparison to Admiral Colburn, he is a stuck up crabby bowl of crabby crabs, man. He oh but Admiral Colburn, you know, I, I like him honestly. He was I, I wish we could get to see more of that character. He was uh he was just on it. He he was listening to the Jedi. He did what needed to be done. I feel like if, if Admiral Yalaran was there, he would just been like, There's no way we can possibly move the cruiser in under there. That's impossible. What you're asking is impossible. We can't do it. But I don't know. Admiral Colburn, he just did it. And for that, I really I really appreciate that. I really appreciate him for that. And I think he's a pretty cool character. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I didn't catch that, but you make some pretty good points there. Um, I mean, yeah. And then we get the whole scene with the opening bottom doors of the the holding cells with with Ahsoka and the uh, yeah. I want to talk about that figurines. for a second. Why you build such a huge prison over such a huge chasm? I guess so that you can drop people. Maybe it's uh, I mean, it must be pretty impervious to ground attack because you're over a void. And I think, like you always say, you know, Star Wars is about the why, not the how. I think that um, that we've we've long established by now that Star Wars has a real Star Wars has a real affinity for building things with giant holes, super high bridges, giant voids with no uh, safety rails around them, you know? So I was not, I was not surprised to see um, the architecture that they chose for that, frankly. Fair point, fair point. Um, I guess you could say, why did they build their cat, their prison over such a large chasm? But I digress. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that uh, I really, man, the, the whole the last ten minutes, this whole sequence was so uh, intense. I just loved it. You know, you had you had Rex and and Obi Wan going in to try and confront the giant chair guy, and simultaneously, obviously, Ahsoka was down there trying to keep the Tegrutans from falling to their deaths. So I thought it was really well done, and. Um, I thought there was a very interesting moment at the climax of it all where um, the chair guy, all his guards have been defeated, and he turns to Obi-Wan and he goes, I know the Jedi won't kill an unarmed man. And then Obi-Wan turns to Rex, and then Rex javelin throws an electro staff into that guy's chest, and then he flies out of control and slams into this giant TV screen. He says, I'm no Jedi. And I think that's just kind of indicative of the Jedi at the time, where maybe they're not following the sp- they're following the letter of the law, even if they're not following the spirit of the law, which oh, is basically Obi Wan saying. I didn't see as oh, it is yeah. Obi Wan directing Rex to do it. I just saw Obi Wan uh, looking behind and seeing Rex do it. Oh, I definitely read it as Obi Wan kind of beckoning at Rex the way it was played. I think because given that they said, you know, you won't kill an under man. But I thought that was an interesting moment because it felt like he was trying to bend the rules without breaking them, which I think is kind of emblematic of how the Jedi were before Revenge of the Sith in this time period, maybe a couple hundred years, hundred years, 50 years leading up to that, where they're so concerned with the letter of the law that they forget the spirit of the law. And they kind of end up in situations like that. 
or I could be totally wrong. Maybe it was just a joke. I don't know. It was maybe, it, maybe. Was, it was a little strange. Um, I'll give you that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, so here's my hot take of this all. Are you ready for for a hot a, a take that is as we as um our good friend Andrew has said before, um, mm. hotter hotter than the coffee, hotter than the coffee take. All right. Well, I think this is not going to surprise you, but it's still probably a pretty hot take. Zygeria as an arc, in my opinion, is better than Umbara as an arc. Wow, that is a uh, that is definitely a take. I think the Zygeria arc is very solid. It is definitely one of my favorites, so I can't I can't complain. I totally respect yeah. that. I think the Zygeria themes in overall are better than the Umbara themes for me, and they they're executed better for me at least. Um, yeah, that's fair. But speaking of the Zygeria arc, I still had a couple more questions about the the ending of that uh that sequence, even though it was really well done with the way you know you had the cruiser and then they were dangling out on the ropes. It was super cool. I thought it was a really creative idea, but in the first two episodes, they kept saying 50,000, 50,000. These 50,000 yeah, people have been captured. In that final scene, there can't have been more than, what, 200 max? Yeah, that's it. Like, what, what is that about? <laughs> Are you seriously saying that you just forgot about the other 49,800 Yes, I think I'm not good at math, but yeah, I think it's 49,000. What happened to the other 49,800 residents well, of the planet? I don't think they Heroes? forgot about that. I, I, I think there's a, there's a genuine explanation for that. All right, I'm listening. They can't animate 50,000 into Grutens. Okay, I thought you, that is true. That is a good point. I thought you meant an in universe explanation, but yes, no, that is an a, actual explanation. Yes, that is a very valid explanation. I can I can even imagine this going down in like the writers' room, or something. Dave Filoni saying, like, "All right," and then we're gonna have this scene where fifty thousand pigrudes jump down. Slow down. And one of the, and then one of the animators is just like, "Hell no, we won't. There's no way we're doing all that. You're getting two hundred and not a single pigrude more, bud. Slow your roll." <laughs> yes, indeed. But I don't know. It, it it's just kind of a it's a it's a wacky question mark that kind of blemishes just a tiny bit and otherwise really, really interesting arc for me. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I, I can't complain. Star Wars has, has had worse plot holes. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the final moments though. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I thought you were going to yeah, say Yeah, go something. ahead. No, I was... No, the final moments of the episode, I thought, they were just so... There was such a sad irony to it all, the way the, the leader of Kyros is saying, oh, perhaps we will join the Republic. And he's kind of like, wink, wink, yeah, I'm going to join the Republic. Let's do it. Let's run it up. This, is, this can't be happening more than two years before the Republic turns into the Empire. Also, it's is, like the end of literally know, every other arc where... It's also like the end of literally every other arc where there is a... Um, there's a there is a there's somebody who is conflicting to uh, pick side. You know what I mean? Yeah, that there there is probably a double digit number of episodes 
that end with a local leader of, of a planet or community saying, you know what, I will join the Republic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, you just, know there's that oh, meme which is, like, um, which is like, you know how many th- times this random thing has happened? Two. Uh, I, it, it's two. But the fact that it's happened more than once is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I think for this particular trope of, oh, maybe we will join the Republic, that two's looking more like a five or a ten for me. No, it's I like mean, 11 or something like that. Yeah, I'd be like, 11, why does this keep happening? Yeah, I don't know. I think this kind of loops yeah. back to what we were talking about earlier, where sometimes one of the things I kind of don't like about the Clone Wars is sometimes it feels like it struggles to reconcile the stories that it's telling with the overall narrative of the war that it's kind of giving and hinting at. But, you know, it, it is what it is. It's time for everyone's favorite part of Star Wars in the Galaxy. You know it. You love it. One portion. That is right. What do we have today, Eli? Uh, we have a little bit of a quick rank. Quick rank. Here we go. Eli. Could you please rank for me, please? Oh gosh, I said please twice. Your top five seasons of Star Wars The Clone Wars. Um. Seven, six, five, three, two, I think, probably. Interesting. All right. Yeah. I think my ranking would have to be in first place, season four, second, season seven, third, season five, fourth, season three, and fifth, season one. Really? No love yeah, for I, Lost Missions? Wow. Nope, nope. Sorry, Lost Missions. Not today. I put it was, them at number a two. Call, um, season six, I've been rewatching that lately. That season is so underrated. It is incredible. Maybe I gotta give it another shot. Maybe I gotta go back and rewatch it. Who knows? Uh, Maybe I will. It it, it is it, it like you know, season seven. Of course, it's a three arc, packing a punch. Bad Batch, Martez sisters, and Siege. But season six is clone um, order sixty six, uh, Clovis stuff, and then. Uh, Yoda exploring the Force for three episodes. I mean, oh, and Sifo Dyas, Order sixty six, um, Clovis, Sifo Dyas standalone, and then Yoda exploring the Force for three episodes. I mean, how's that bad? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I just, I just love yeah. a lot of episodes from no, season one. So I, yeah, I just, I had to put it on there, you know. Um, now I get it. Um, top five. Outlaws. Characters outlaws. who live top beyond five. the law. Hmm, top five outlaw characters. Man, this is a hard one because I think you could count a lot of characters depending on what stage of their life they are in. So I'm going to try and stick to characters who are really outlaws through and through. Number one, you know him, you love him. That's got to be Hondo Onaka. Easy. <laughs> I love Hondo. Oh, man. Number two, 
think Han. I think Han Solo would count, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I want to put Lando, but I don't really think Lando counts since he spends a lot of time as the administrator of Cloud City. I don't know. I think Lando's count. Okay, then I'll put Lando above Han. So that is uh, Hondo, Lando, Han. Man, Hondo just sounds like a... (laughs) Hondo's name just sounds like a combination of the other two. It's it's the the other two's ship name. Yeah, Hondo is Han and Lando's ship name. (laughs) You're right, that is... Wow. Number four, Beckett, I think. And number five, I'm going to say Aura Singh, I think. Number five, I'll go with Django. No, wait. I'll put Django higher than that. Uh, number five, I'll put um, Lando Calrissian. Number four, mm. I'll put Django Fett. Number three, I'll put Han Solo. Number two, I'll put the Sheriff of Freetown himself. That's right. You know him. You'll love him. His name is Cobb Vanth. And number one, I'm going to put the Sith Hunter who lives outside of the law as hard as you can go. And that is my boy, my main man, Ochi of Festoon. Nice. So, Ochi leading leading the, the... the pack, um, with Cobb being a very close second, because he's Cobb freaking Vamp. You know what I mean? So that's going to be it for this episode of Star Wars in the Galaxy, watching all the Star Wars we can get our hands on. Um, in the meantime, before our next episode um, airs, you can uh, follow us on Spotify. Uh, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We will be there. You can subscribe to us on uh, YouTube, Star Wars in a Galaxy. Follow us on Twitter at AnyGalaxyPod, Instagram at Star Wars in a Galaxy. Um, and in the meantime, may the Force be with you. Always. <laughs>